Good evening. So glad that you've joined us this evening as we uh, get to uh, just kind of press the pause button from our week and enter into God's presence and worship him. He is our savior, our Lord this evening. And uh, so we're so glad that you're here as we begin to worship. So I invite you to uh, just let everything go tonight and enter in and worship your God from the depth of your being this evening. Let's stand and worship our Savior. Have you heard death has been conquered
Come a throne in heaven to a sinner's cross. You bought our freedom with your outstretched arms. We praise the Savior of the world. Jesus is alive, the stone we rolled away. Our hope is built upon an empty grave. We praise the Savior of the world. We praise the Savior of the world.
God is glorious. And Psalm 23 paints a wonderful picture of who Jesus is to us. I invite you, let's read it together this evening. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We'll take a moment. You'll see that we've put it there on the screen for you. It might be hopefully not too small. but We just read that. Now take a moment and meditate that. And think about it. And just pray to your shepherd, your God this evening in whatever way you need to. Focus on whatever you feel you need to. Allow the Lord to speak to you. Surely your goodness, your loving kindness follows us all the days of our lives.
that song we just sang, we truly do love you. We don't want it to just be words that easily slide off our lips, but we want it to be heartfelt. And We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for being our shepherd, for taking care of us, for leading us, for guiding us. When times get tough, you allow us to stay safe. You bring comfort. You bring restoration to our soul, our mind, our will, and our emotions so that we can be stable, so that we can be people that know that we know that we know that you are our God. So we thank you for your goodness and your mercy that follow us each and every day. We thank you that we can come to this place each week and worship you in spirit and in truth. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You would open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 21 as we continue our journey through the Bible and in this study. We'll be in Luke a couple more weeks, and then we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, um, taking some time. We're going to move out of that, go 1 Corinthians, and then we'll come back to John. We've been in the Gospels for, for quite a bit of time, being able to, to be in this place. You know, I was considering while we were worshiping, does God have a plan, or is everything just kind of happening? I mean, seriously, do you think that God has a plan? If God has a plan, and I believe He does, then everything is working out according to His good pleasure and according to His plan. We don't find anywhere where it would give us this idea that God is surprised by things, although we might be. Well, that's the difference between him being omniscient and us being knuckleheads. So God has got a plan and he's got everything working out. And we're just trying to figure it out and keep up with the plan. Part of the plan that we read in, and we start in Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation and why we're journeying through the Bible as we are is to understand the plan. What's the plan? Well, quite simply, the plan is Redemption starts in Genesis and all the way to Revelation and gives us this plan of redemption. That means that you have value and and such a great value that your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundations of the world. In in God's omniscience, he knew all of this was going to take place in every detail about your life and all the things that are going on within your life. And by the way, he loves you anyways. And he's got a plan for you. And I look at the things that happen, I'm like, God, I didn't like your plan. And then God reminds me, I didn't remember consulting you. We are coming to this place here in the Gospels that is revealing 
the end of the plan, at least for the humanity of Jesus, in the redemption for this peace, where Jesus has now fulfilled the ministry and the mission that he was given to, to do at his time over 2,000 years ago, and that is to come into Jerusalem and to die on the cross. We've been studying how Jesus has come into Palm Sunday. On Sunday, on Monday, he comes back and he cleans house. On Tuesday, he does an awful lot of teaching and demonstrates his authority. How he teaches the parable of the vineyard owner and, and debates with the religious leaders that were all there. They were trying to trap Jesus in his words as if it was their plan to put him to death. But whose plan was it? God's plan. God's plan all along. And they were looking for an opportunity to trap him in his words. And, and I love how Jesus, you know, every now and then would give him a little jab and say, no, you're not really in control, I am. Tonight we're going to be continuing in this Passion Week and we're going to have a conversation that will take us all the way through to just before the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus comes in to that place. And understanding these, these last words that Jesus will be teaching with his disciples, his public ministry is for the most part done. We're going to see Jesus dealing with Peter, with Judas, establishing uh, the Last Supper as we know it and preparing them for communion. To be able to bring that plan, at least this part of the plan, but it's not over at the cross. In fact, it's not even over at the resurrection. Because what is God's ultimate plan? Your redemption. The conquering of sin, the conquering of death, the once and for all doing away with man's greatest enemy, death, and the one that is bringing it upon us. Satan, he's got one job, to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, granted, he's doing a really good job of it. And he's working really hard at how many people he can destroy, how many people he can kill. You know, even on my Facebook feed, I just sitting there worshiping, and, and I got a feed that down in Texas, another law enforcement officer was shot in a mall shooting. We, we hear about these things that are horrific events, and we go, God, do you got a plan? And the answer is yes. But we're in a war, and it's a battle. And Satan is doing everything he can do to try to stop it. But in the end, guess what? He loses. He loses. So we're going to be getting into this study here. We're picking up in verse 6 of chapter 21. As Jesus is now preparing the disciples for his departure. And one of the things that he needs to prepare them for is the persecutions that are coming. And if we, we think it's bad now, they had it bad and, and, and we have it bad. But keep in mind, they're a smaller group. And their persecutions are going to be great comparatively. So we'll take a look at these persecutions that are there. And some of it is going to, it's going to sound very familiar because we've been covering it in Matthew also. <clears throat> and so this is the beginning of what we've been studying in the Olivet Discourse. This is Luke's accounting of it. Now, mind you, you've got to know the author, Luke, who is a, a Gentile. He was a doctor and he was writing to Theophilus, lover of God. And so he is writing the reasons why we should believe that Jesus is the Son of God. 
And he starts out in verse 6, he says, As for these things which you are looking at, and the days will come in which there will not be one stone left upon another which will not be torn down. They question him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen, and what shall be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them when you hear the wars and the disturbances, and do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, before the end, and it doesn't follow immediately. We hear about wars. We hear about Russia getting ready to go into Ukraine and all of these things. And as I shared on Sunday, and if you, if you want to go back and look at the Olivet Discourse and you can watch Sunday's message or the last couple of messages in that, you're going to understand that Jesus was speaking of the near and the far. The near, the things that would be destroyed as he's looking at the temple, he's seeing these things as not one stone's going to be left up. And that happened in 70 A.D. But then he's looking at the far and the destruction that's going to take place within these things and the final warnings that are there as the temple is going to be destroyed. And it will be. The Jews are going to revolt for about three years from 68 A.D. to 70 A.D. Titus is going to come in with the Roman army. He's going to burn it down. But I got to thinking, you know, we talk about the temple an awful lot. Do we really know how important, in our Western mindset, do we really know how important that temple really is to the Jewish culture? Why was it such a big deal for Jesus to sit on the Mount of Olives and, and look three, four hundred yards across the Kidron Valley and see this temple? Why was it such a big deal? I got a video clip that I want to share with you. It's, it, it's about a four and a half minute video clip there. And it goes through the history of the temple because we really have to understand the mindset of the Jews as they would see this and as they would hear these words that Jesus is teaching. It's nearly impossible to be in Jerusalem and not feel the imposing presence of the Temple Mount. There's good reason for this. Thousands of years before the time of Jesus, it was made to be this way. It's not only the central icon that represents Jerusalem today. It was the central icon that represented the Israelites when they came into the Promised Land. It is believed that upon these hills, Abraham prepared to offer his son Isaac to God in a powerful display of the covenant relationship he had with God. God tested Abraham, but halted the death of Isaac, providing an alternate sacrifice instead. Later, in the time of King David, the Jebusites lived here. David conquered the city of Jebus and made it the capital of his kingdom, the city of David, or Jerusalem. During the reign of David's son, King Solomon, a permanent temple was erected here on the Temple Mount almost 1,000 years before Jesus came. It was the icon of the people and the place where the God of Israel met with them. The Temple Mount and the Temple itself were not only the most holy place among the people, but the center of their identity. This lasted for about 350 years until the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem completely, destroying the Temple and carrying the people into exile. About 40 years later, 
the people were given permission to return from exile, and they erected a new temple on the Temple Mount under the leadership of Zerubbabel. Just prior to the time of Jesus, Herod the Great began a massive rebuilding project on the Temple Mount, bringing in 10,000 laborers and expanding the Mount itself in ways that were and still are technological marvels. He rebuilt the temple for the Jewish people and made it a more extravagant symbol than it had ever been. This was the temple Jesus knew. Unfortunately, the beautiful temple that sat on the Temple Mount was to have a short life. Jesus predicted this, and in the year 70, to forcefully end the rebellion against the Roman Empire, the Romans utterly and completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple with it. The Temple Mount remained a ruin until the Arab conquest in the mid-600s when the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock that sit there today were erected. The Temple Mount is perhaps the most contested piece of real estate in the world now, holding significant religious meaning for the religious Jews, Christians, and Muslims. For the Jewish people, all that's left of the original temple is one wall, known as the Western Wall. This is the only remnant left that was not completely destroyed. And pilgrims pray there continually asking God to restore the temple and the people. This is why it has been given its common name, the Wailing Wall. Moving into the tunnels along the wall, one can see the massive construction done over the millennia to create the Temple Mount. Beneath the ground, in the rabbinical tunnels sits the closest place a Jewish person can come to the place where the Holy of Holies once stood. The steps that once led into the majestic temple complex still exist today, although they do not lead onto the Temple Mount any longer. It is quite certain that these steps were the main entrance into the temple complex and that Jesus would have certainly walked here and probably taught here it's also likely that the early Christians gathered here. It's one of the birthplaces of the Christian church. The Temple Mount remains a holy site for pilgrims of many faiths and remains an icon of hope for the day that God returns to rule and reign forever. I don't know about you, but when I watch that, or when I go, and we've been to, I've been to Israel, had the opportunity to be at Israel like six different trips. And those of you that have gone to us, did that bring back memories? You think about that, and Lord willing, we'll get there again. But when I look at that, I am amazed, and then I feel so puny and so young comparatively to think about this, this place that God had established. And his plan that began so long ago, and all the pieces that have gone into that plan, and the Temple Mount is not done yet. The Dome of the Rock Mosque that you saw, the big golden dome that is there, that is in that place, that is just a platform. The temple is, is, would have been higher than that. And as Jesus is looking across and talks to the disciples, 
He says, not one stone's going to be left. If you noticed the sidewalk, that sidewalk that was buckled, the reason why it was buckled is because when Titus came in and set fire to the temple, all the gold inlay all melted. And it went into the cracks of the walls. And so the soldiers came and they pushed those stones off of the side, off of the western wall. What you saw was the western and the southern. The steps that went down was the southern. There's a place called Robinson's Arch that comes off of that. Those stones would have came, pushed off and cracked all of that bedrock uh, sidewalk, all the sidewalk that is all down there. And it happened, just as Jesus said. They thought the impossible would take place. It'll never happen. And Jesus says, not one stone's going to be left. Verses 7 and 8, he says, there's going to be, there's going to be these false teachers that come that are going to be misleading. And he says, these are just signs. Signs that the end is drawing near. Now, Jesus is telling them, and in their mind, they're like, yeah. Yeah, it could happen at any time. We're ready. Well, not quite ready, but we're almost ready. We're getting close to being ready. In 135 um, A.D., there was a, a Messianic pretender to be Jesus. His name was Bar Kakaba, and he was leading a Jewish revolt against Rome. And, and then that ended up creating such a stir that all the Jews were banished from the land. Within this, we see the first Jewish revolt and the second Jewish revolt that was taking place and, and continued on. And we go, well, God, do you got a plan? And the answer is absolutely yes. In Isaiah chapter 19, verse 2, it's, Isaiah writes, of God, he says, So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight against his brother and each against his neighbor and city against city and kingdom against kingdom. Wars in all these places. Do we really think that Putin is in charge of this war against Ukraine? Don't be fooled. God will incite these kings and these rulers against each other. Why? Because he needs to move all of these chess pieces into place for the battle, the last great battle. Where Gog and Magog and these, these, these armies and these nations will come together and, and nations will join together, they'll merge together and then there's going to be this one epic war that takes place. Guess where the epicenter is? Jerusalem. Israel. One little small chunk of dirt, and they're all going to be drawn there. Why? Because Satan hates God. And Satan thinks that he can beat him. And that is all part of God's plan, because God is going to reveal that not only does he have the right to rule all things, but he has the power and authority. And it has to be cast down. And so all of this is all going into play. So Jesus is warning his disciples and us. And he says, when these false teachers come, don't worry about it. And he goes on in, in to verse 9. And he says this, and when you hear of wars and disturbances, don't be terrified. For these things must take place first. But the end does not follow. Why? Because there's a span of time. We've been waiting for Jesus to come back for over 2,000 years. Does God operate on our timetable? What if he waits another 2,000 years? Are we good with that? What if it's one more day? Are we good with that? Yeah. Much better with that. But we have to be ready, as I shared on Sunday. So we look at, well, what is the key? In Mark chapter 13, again, in the same pericope of all of these, he, he says this, The gospel must first be preached to all nations. 
Why does God want the gospel preached to all nations before the end comes? Why? Because it all fits into his plan of redemption. The gospel's got to go out so that people will hear. So if you're not sharing the gospel, you're holding things up. Get busy. Serious. The gospel needs to be preached, and again, to all nations. And in their construct, it would have been all the nations of the Roman empires, including the Gentiles. These are necessary birth pains. The destruction of the temple must happen. Why? Because it was God's intention to decentralize this epic center to spread it out. Why did the persecution of the disciples happen in Jerusalem, as we're going to talk about in a minute? Why? Because after Jesus rose again, they weren't going anywhere. Pain is a really good teacher and a really good motivator. And he said, look it, you guys are sitting, and I told you to go. If you're not going to go, I'm going to get you to go. And again, it is all part of God's plan. And we see the persecution of the church was all part of God's intention. In verses 12 to 19, we see the distress that is coming. Not just the, the disaster that's coming, but the distress. In 12 to 19... After these earthquakes and such, he says, before all these things, they will lay hand. Before what all these things? Before all the, the great cataclysmic events, nation against nation, and earthquake and famines and terrors. Before all these things happen, they will lay hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and the prisons and bringing you before the kings and the governors for my name's sake. And it will lead to an opportunity. Notice, highlight 13. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your mind not to prepare beforehand to defend yourself, for I'll give you an utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. I love that. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all because of my name. I don't love that. But then he says, not a hair of your head will perish, and by your endurance you will gain your lives. Before all these cataclysmic events will take place, distress is going to come. It's going to get hard. He was telling his disciples, that group of 12 that was right there, before all of this happens, you're going to start being persecuted. And they didn't hesitate. Why were the disciples hiding after the crucifixion? Because they were scared of the persecution and the Romans that were going to come after them. Have you ever heard the term guilty by association? They're going to hate you because they hate me. If you're being persecuted for the name of Christ, that's not on you. They're mad at Jesus. But by calling yourself Christian, by identifying as a Christ follower, you are putting a target on your back. Why? Because they're really targeting Jesus. And again, it's motivated by Satan. John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19 says this. Jesus' words, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because this world hates you. What is he talking about? The world? The world system. Who was the first hater of God? Lucifer. And rebelled against him. And then he enables and empowers this world system that hates God. Do we live in a world full of God-haters? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. It, it's interesting 
how so many people are tolerant of so many different things until you name the name of Christ. We are so tolerant. We've got to be tolerant. We've got to love each other. Let's all give each other a hug. Kumbaya and all this stuff. And then they find out you're a Christian and then all of a sudden they all turn on you. And they hate you. Why? Because they hate Jesus. That persecution is going to take place because of the destruction. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. So what does Jesus say? Make up your mind what you're going to say and do before that happens. And don't stress when it happens. But just make up your mind what you're going to say and do. And don't stress. And most importantly, trust in God. He'll give you the words. And I love what Jesus says here. He'll give you the words that will confound them. I don't need to argue from my own intellect. I need to argue from a spirit-filled life. And I can tell you this. If you know the Word of God, you will have every defense and give an answer to anyone who asks. For the reason, as Peter would say, for the hope that lies within you. What is that hope that lies within you? It's the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. That you can give that answer to them. And that persecution, unfortunately, is going to come from family members. Fulfillment of Micah 7.6. He says, For son treats fathers contemptuously. Daughter rises against her mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies are men of his own household. They're They're going to struggle. Because your own house is going to turn on you. People are going to turn on you because Satan wants to destroy homes. Is he working a good job at doing that? Sure. Because think about this. If Satan destroys the house and turns the whole house against God, what happens to the church? Destroys the church because as the house goes, so goes the church. That's why it's imperative for us to raise our children in the ways of the Lord and continue to take care of them. But then you come to this one phrase that says, Yet not a hair of your head will perish. For those of you that don't have any hairs on your head, this verse does not apply to you. But for the rest of us that are still sporting, what's Jesus really saying? Well, he's talking about this idea of loss. It seems contradictory. He says, On one hand, you're going to get killed. On the other hand, you're going to be protected and not a hair is going to get lost. It was, a, it was just a saying. You're not going to lose a hair on your head. What is Jesus really implying? It's one thing for man or, or people to take your life. But they can't touch your soul. In fact, in Luke 12, 4-5, through 5, he says this, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you, Whom to fear? Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. He's talking about that hair. He's talking about that life. If somebody takes my life, you know, that's on them. They can deal with it before God. But God is the one that I answer to for my soul. And he's the one that I need to continue. So persevere. And he's really talking about this, this... Faithful perseverance. And I was thinking about that. Faithful perseverance in the face of persecution demonstrates real faith. 
Not too many years ago, there was a group of Ethiopian believers who were lined up on a beach in orange jumpsuits that were, that were challenged to deny their faith. And they said, absolutely not. And the end result was what? They all lost their heads. The believer who was in an orange jumpsuit put in a cage and put in the middle of the streets that was set on fire because he wouldn't renounce his faith. That's perseverance all the way to the end, to the nth degree. That reveals that true faith. Today, so many people say, well, if you call me Christian, I'm just going to be a quiet Christian. I'm going to be a closet Christian. I'm not going to open my mouth because I don't want people to think bad about me. If you confess Jesus before men, then Jesus will confess you before his Father that is in heaven. If you deny him before men, he will deny you before his Father in heaven. We need to persevere in light of persecution. And we also need to understand that desolation is coming in 20 to 24. He goes, he goes on and he says this, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by the armies, and then recognize that her desolation is near, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are the days of vengeance. So that all things which are written, notice, here's the plan. All things that are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be a great distress upon the land and the wrath to his people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and they will lead captive. They will be led captive into all the nations of Jerusalem and will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Note, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, is there a plan? Yes, that plan is, is being enacted. Why? Two reasons. God doesn't lie. And all things written must be fulfilled. Why? Because God doesn't lie. And is there a plan? Yes, because he knows until there's a certain time, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Luke is unique about this. And, and so what does he say? Well, Jesus says initially, he says, when you see the armies of the city, run. God, does, God calls us to persevere under persecution. He doesn't call you to be stupid. If the city is surrounded by an army, don't go into the city. Don't be a martyr when you don't need to be a martyr. Go hide. To those that are up in the northern end of the city in the Galilee, go to Pella, to the mountains. To those that are in the southern area, go to Petra, that is down in the bottom. Get out. Go away. And when you see this desolation, in Mark 13, Matthew 24, in those authors, they accounted the abomination of desolation. Are they one and the same? Sure, Luke could be referring to the, de the desolation or the abomination of desolation. Or he could just be speaking and uh, in, in referring to Titus and coming with his armies. In any case, this is a Gentile audience that is reading about a Jewish event. And a Gentile is not going to know about the abomination of desolation of Daniel. He just doesn't study the Old Testament. But the learning lesson is this. If you see it bad, don't go there. The fall is going to happen. Why? According to God's plan, as the Roman army would come in. And as the word of God is going to be fulfilled. And there's going to be sadness and desolation that happens in Jerusalem. So much so, he says, whoa. Whenever God says, whoa, is that a bad thing? That's a bad thing. Whoa. 
He's not stopping a horse. He says, whoa, it's a bad thing. Woe to the one nursing. Why? Because it's going to be a hardship. If you have a child, it's going to be a hardship. It's going to be difficult. I can tell you this. Life is going to get hard. It's going to get worse. So get ready. If the Lord doesn't take us out before then, we will be going through hardship. And we need to be smart. Many are going to die in war. Many are going to be taken captive in Jerusalem at this time. That's going to happen. There is going to be death. There is going to be war. There is going to be suffering. Why? Because you've got to understand, there is a warfare between Satan, who is the murderer, and God, who is the redeemer. Satan knows his end, doesn't he? And he wants to take out as many people as he can. And God is working at redeeming. And it's not about the redemption of this physical body, but the soul. That's why the gospel must be preached. How long? Luke does something that is interesting because he clues it in as he's writing to Gentiles. He says, until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. There's a couple of things that are part of that. One is, that gives us a timeline. A period of time. After Jesus ascends and Israel is, is attacked and destroyed in 70 A.D., a time clock starts. That time clock is called the church age or the time of the Gentiles, when God puts his attention on the gospel going out to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. The nation of Israel will be disbanded. The people will be scattered throughout the whole world. Meanwhile, the gospel is going out to the Gentiles. How do we know that? Because the churches that Paul was starting out throughout Asia... Lord willing, we're trying to put together a trip to go to the seven churches in the book of Revelation here in October. We're going to see how far it is and look at what these churches did. One of the places that we're looking at, it's, it's the Gentile catacombs. It's the underground hiding places for, uh, for Christians that, are, that is in Turkey. Why did they have to hide underground? Because they were being persecuted within this. This times of the Gentiles is very specific, but what implies also not only are the, is the gospel going out to the Gentiles, but it says until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled within this. And then at that period of time, when that time is fulfilled, God will turn his attention back to Israel, back to the last week. Well, what has to happen in order for God to turn his attention back to the nation of Israel? Guess what? There has to be an Israel. 1948, they all started coming back into the land. This thing called Zionism, was it the Jews' idea? Nope. They all start coming back. One of the greatest migrations, and they were averaging 500,000 Jews a year migrating for the first few years, coming back in. When you go to Israel today, it is a great place. They have the intels there. They've got all kinds of things. They don't have an in and out over there yet, but... I think it's that whole cheese thing that they can't get over. But you look at it. they got everything. What they don't have is the temple. And they don't have control of the temple mount. The Dome of the Rock sits on there. It's, Muslim, oh, it's a Muslim worship center. But the Arabs aren't in control of it. At least 
the, Jordan, the king of Jordan, they have a ministry, a guy that's from Jordan that actually comes over and takes care of everything. When you go up the ramps, there's, bullet, there's bulletproof like shields that are all along the ramp and they've got guards that are there. There's no control of that, but what will happen is the Antichrist is going to come in he's going to negotiate peace. Temple Institute says that they could rebuild the, the whole temple in one year. They have all the implements already, including the DNA of a pure red heifer in order to be able to offer sacrifice. It's amazing all that they've had. We've seen it. It's all there. So when that happens, it will happen. When the time of the Gentiles is complete, it will happen. But it, there is a timeline. God is in charge. Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 26 says this. For I don't want you, to, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. That word mystery there in Greek is mysterion. It means something that was once hidden is now revealed. A mystery was, for the Jews, no Gentile could ever be saved. That was a, a mysterion. It was a, it was a concept that was hidden, but now is revealed through Jesus. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove the ungodliness from Jacob. And Jesus will do that when he comes, when he returns. He'll come back from, from heaven, as we're going to read here in a moment, and he will come to the Mount of Olives. And he will reestablish that kingdom and be that deliverer for the, for the people. So again, does God have a plan? Absolutely. And we are watching it happen. And Jesus is declaring for the first time to these disciples... I've got a plan. It's going to be tough, but it'll work. So in, in chapter 21, 25 to 38, he says, so prepare yourself. Then he goes on, he says, there will be signs of the sun and the moon and the stars and the earth dismayed among the nations in perplexity and all the roaring of the sea and the waves, men failing from fear and expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man come in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads. Why? Because your redemption is drawing near. Because it is getting closer and closer. Well, pause there just for a moment because I want to focus on that. One of the things that we've been studying is this cataclysmic events and signs and wonders that take place. Unlike the false teachers that they're saying, well, Jesus is over there, the Messiah is over there, and go run and go find him. Everybody is going to see Jesus comes back all at one time. They're going to know it. There is no hiding it. When Jesus came the first time, he was a little baby that was born of a young girl in a stable, and the shepherds had to go into Bethlehem and go find him. When he comes in the second advent, he will come and everybody will see it. He will come in the clouds, descending from heaven. After the, and notice it says, that then, after these things, this tells us that his return is after the tribulation, verse 27. Then Jesus will return, and they'll all see it. It's a fulfillment of Joel 2.10. It says, Before them, the earthquakes and the heaven trembled, and the sun and the moon will, and the stars will grow and lose their brightness. These huge cataclysmic events. 
and he will come back to the Mount of Olives. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. This is how Jesus left. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and the cloud received him out of their sight. They were gazing intently to the sky, and he was going. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking in the sky? The Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. That would have been a sight. You got these guys who've been hanging out with Jesus, they're looking up, and there goes Jesus. And I don't know if it was Gabriel or, and Michael said, let's go get him. And just stand right here and, and just said, men of Galilee, the way you saw him go is the way he's going to come, the way he's going to return. It fulfills, as I said, all scripture has to be fulfilled according to God's what? Plan. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, tells us this. I kept looking in the night vision, and the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man, was coming, and he came up, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. Who was that? That's Jesus. Even in Daniel's time, he saw this vision of heaven. He saw the return, get this, saw the return of Christ before Christ had ever been born. We can rest assured, God's got this. He's got the plan. He's executing the plan, even in the hard times. And what he says is this, look up, because your redemption is drawing near. When you've come to an end of your rope, when you, you, you think, I just can't do another thing, look up. I can't go any further, look up. Look for the signs. Look for the things that tell you that Jesus is coming soon. If you get caught up on, on watching the news, whatever your flavor is, and get spun up and become depressed because they're doing this or they're doing that, they're passing this law, the corruption is here and that, you're looking down. You're not looking in the right place. Look up. The signs are telling us that Jesus is coming close. And, and as we studied this morning in our men's study, and I encourage you guys, if you have the opportunity, and I know you all do because you're not doing anything at 5 o'clock in the morning. We have a great men's study. And we were talking this morning about timelines and how God's timeline is not our timeline and how God operates outside of time. What we think is taking forever is nothing to God because He always was and always is. But Jesus gives this parable in 38, or I'm sorry, 28 to 36. He tells them this parable. He says, so look at the fig tree and the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves and you see it, and you know for yourselves that summer is now here. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. That the day will not come on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon those who dwell on the face of the earth. Hence, like the trap. But, be keep, but keep on alert all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. What does he say? 
Well, this is an agrarian culture. They're all farmers. Fig trees was, was like going to work. If you're going to be a good farmer, you're going to pay attention to your, your trees, right? And you know what happens when the bear tree grows leaves. And then when the leaves get to their fullness, what's the next thing that is produced? Fruit. These guys didn't grow trees because they liked leaves. They wanted fruit. And they knew what season and how close they were. And it doesn't happen overnight, but it takes time. We watch these things. And so Jesus again gives his disciples an encouragement. Don't worry. And don't fall into drunkenness. Don't fall into dissipation, which is like this horrible style of living. And if you keep your eyes going, it's not going to catch you off guard. Who's the ones that will be caught off guard? Is the ones that are drunk. The ones that aren't looking up. And then they're going to be sorrowful. So we watch for those signs. 37 and 38 tells us just a, a Luke's summary statement. Now in the day he was teaching in the temple, at night he was going out to, to Bethany and the Mount of Olives, and all the people would get up early in the morning to come to the temple and listen to him. So that was going on. This kind of ends that narrative. There's this gap into 22, where 22 picks up here, and what we see is the, the Last Supper, his intimate time with the disciples. Now mind you, Luke has gotten his information from eyewitnesses and from Mark within this. As Luke is writing this, there's a couple of different ways that, that authors would write. They would write in a chronological aspect. In other words, there's a straight timeline. Or they would write in a literary aspect, right? Where they take groups and, groupings of account and put them together. And that's how chapter 22 is phrased. It's in groupings. It's not necessarily in chron chronological order. But what I've done is I've taken it and put it into chronological order. Because I'm kind of a linear thinker. I want to know what happened and what happened next and what happened next. So, so you're getting the chronological aspect of this. Starting here with uh, chapter 22, verses 1 through 6, we have the betrayal that is set into motion, right? So if you were to picture this as a movie plot, this is kind of like the back scene, the, the betrayal that's going on in, and the narration. It says, Now the feast of the unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. Note that. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him, being Jesus, to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. So we'll pause there for a minute. So we see the, the, the setting being set up and this betrayal that's set into motion. It is the Passover. That's why Jesus is there. That's why all the people are there. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people have all converged onto Jerusalem for Passover, for the, the celebration of it. was one of the high days. Atonement was another one. So there was the Passover day, and that commemorates Israel's redemption from slavery, deliverance from slavery, as we'll get into it in a minute. So that was one day, but following that was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would be another seven days. And what they had done over time is they merged them two together. So you had Passover and 
the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why? Because everybody likes a holiday. And so they'd be off for like a week with this. They'd have the Passover celebration and then this feast that was all one week. And it was all put together. And so now it was time to prepare for the Passover of this feast. It would have um, taken place most likely at this time. It would, have, it would have happened. And again, if you're looking at a timeline, at sundown Tuesday is the beginning of Wednesday. They go from sundown to sundown, right? So the Jewish Wednesday actually begins Tuesday night at sundown. So it was Tuesday night after sundown, they would have, Jesus would say, it's time to start thinking about this Passover feast and start getting prepared for that. It was celebrated the 15th through the 21st of Nisan, which are half months. It was March, April. So that would be our March, April time period. Um, and within this, they would come together. We know that it was a couple of days earlier because of Matthew 26, 2. It says, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be handed over for the crucifixion. So we know that it's in the preparation day and it, it would be that, that Tuesday evening, but it would really be that Wednesday. And by the way, any part of a day is counted as a whole day in Jewish, in Jewish culture. So you can, that'll, that'll help us out when we get into the resurrection here in a moment. Or not tonight, but later on. What else has happened? Luke does not account for the anointing of Jesus by Mary in Bethany. If you remember the account, there was an anointing. Disciples got real ticked off. They said, why are they spending this money and all of this? And Judas was a money hawk. So he leaves the anointing and he goes down and he has this meeting with the scribes and the, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. We know that they were looking for an opportunity to catch Jesus in his words, right, from the debates earlier. But they couldn't. Every time they tried to trap him, whether it was a, whether it was a political debate or a religious debate or, or a legal debate, they couldn't trap him in the words. And they were mad because they couldn't catch him. How are we going to get this guy? It's not a matter of... of if we can kill him, it's when we can kill him, but we've got to be able to do it. And we've got to do it away from the crowd. We don't want the crowd to know. Because he was way, way too popular. And if the Jewish leaders started a, a riot on Passover with a bunch of people that really like this guy, what are the Romans going to do? They're going to come down and destroy them all. Keep in mind, Antonio Fortress had no less than 600 guards in the Antonio Fortress that could be released on on the Jews at any one time. And they would have had more because of the Passover and the crowds that were there. So they didn't want to riot. They didn't want to do it publicly. How were we going to take care of this? An interesting statement in verse 3. It says, Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. There is much commentary on that. Some would say that, that Judas was demon-possessed. That, that he had no choice. I disagree with that. Satan entered in with a temptation. It's not working out the way you like it, right, Judas? You're losing money on this deal. You're not getting the position. It's not working out. And so Judas became the ultimate disgruntled employee. And so he thought, you know, I'm going to figure out how to get mine and get out. I know these guys hate Jesus. 
I'm going to go have a conversation with him. So he goes and has a conversation with him, and they say, wow, we got the inside scoop. All we need to do is know where we can get him when nobody else is around, and we got him. Judas agrees. And he says, I'll let you know when there's a good time. I'll let you know when it's time. Whether it was for the love of money or hurt pride. We know according to Matthew 26, 15, he was offered 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. We go on into verse 7. And it says, 7 to 13, the preparation of the Passover meal. It says, and then came the first day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. And he said to them, where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, when you've entered into the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall, which would be kind of creepy, I think. And you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher has, says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large furnished upper room. Uh, prepare it there. And they left and they found everything just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. So what ended up happening? Well, it was the Passover, which ultimately we start with the Passover meal, which was a memorial meal. It was a memorial meal that was mandated to be eaten Inside the city walls. That's why Jesus couldn't eat it in Bethany. According to the law, 2 Chronicles, and you can read it later, 2 Chronicles 35, 16 and 19, it was mandated that as a Jew you had to eat it inside the city walls. And you had to, you had to eat a specific, a specific type of food. It had to be a, a lamb that was roasted. We have a, a, a booklet. They didn't have it back then. They had the law. But we have a booklet called the Haggadah. And in the Haggadah, it tells everything that you're supposed to do, including the scripts on how, they, uh, on how they were to carry things out. So they were preparing everything. So go find a man carrying a pitcher. You say, well, is that weird? Yes. First century church, or first century uh, at this time, men didn't carry water. In fact, there was only one group of men that would carry the water, and they were called the Essenes. They, were the, they would end up being the keepers. If you know anything about the Dead Sea Scrolls, they were the keepers of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they would, carry that, they would carry that water. So go in and find the guy carrying the water. Follow him to his house. Now, a couple of things could be. One, it could be prearranged, which is highly probable because of the title, The Teacher. The Teacher would be a title that Jesus would carry and people would know it. Had Jesus prearranged it? Most probably. But I wouldn't rule out his, his uh, omniscience in, in knowing this. You can't make an argument either way. It's interesting that they would go and make this prearrangement, and they would go and prepare everything and get everything done accordingly for the, the meal, because it all had to be prepared um, prior to sundown on Thursday. We say, well, what happened to that time after he said, go prepare it, get it ready, and all of that? Wednesday was a down day in the Passion Week. There isn't anything really mentioned in Scripture about that Wednesday. So that Thursday morning before sundown, Peter and John, they go and they get everything ready. They get all the food prepared and the room is set. Now we're going to go to uh, verses 14 to 16 and then we're going to jump down to 2430. 14 to 16 says, 
And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Does God have a plan? Yes. So he gathers them together and he says, the hour has come or the specific time to eat has come. And so and then he calls them together. They all come into the room and now it's time to sit at the table. They recline on the table by leaning on their left side, feet going out on pillows, not like Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper table where you got Jesus in the middle sitting in chairs and Jesus' head's glowing. Not like that. And, and Judas is sitting next to him with the face of the devil. Not like that. At any rate, they all come in. Note what verses 24 to 30 say. It says, And when they arose, a dispute among them as to who is, which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. Why would they do that? They're looking for the chief seat at the table. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way to you, but the one who is the greatest among you must be like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater than the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Note those words. It is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you, that you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, and you will sit at the thrones judging the twelve. So we pause there and we say, well, what is that all about? Well, the first thing, they, he says, I want to eat this dinner with you, and they all come in and they say, I want to sit there. That's my seat. Because you would start from the greatest to the least around the table. The guest of honor would always have the first seat. And Judas got that seat. And then it was Jesus. And then it was John. It was a U-shaped table. Peter was a cross. Looking this way. And so that's because they were able to do that. John, we're told in John's account... John was leaning on the chest of Jesus. It's important to understand the place settings within this that is there. Jesus declared that this is his last supper. This is his last time with them. And they're having this huge debate and this huge argument about who is the greatest. Now, Luke does not capture in this account, but John does. In John 13, 1 to 20, and you can read it later... After this debate about who's the greatest, Jesus and, and the one that's leaning at the table is not the greatest, but the one that is the servant. And guess what Jesus does? Gets up and washes their feet. Then he comes back and then he sits down at that. And then he reveals, now we jump to 21-23. This is why the chronology makes better sense. Luke did it for a whole different reason. Because he was grouping ideas together. 21 to 23, Jesus comes back and sits down. And he says, But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine at the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he has betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be. But who was this going to do this thing? 
It's the one that is by me. Who is the? There was only two people by him, right? John and Judas. Only two. And Jesus said, it's the one that is by me. Matthew and Mark's account add in Matthew 26. And Mark's, it says, is the one that dips in the same bowl as me. Judas wanted to be like the others. And in Matthew 26, 25, Judas says, is it, it is I? Is it I? And Jesus said, you said it yourself. And at that time, um, in John's account, in John 13, 27 to 30, it says Satan entered Judas's heart. And Jesus says, what you do, go do quickly. Now, in these accounts, in chronology, we see twice that Satan enters Judas's heart. If he was demon-possessed for the first time, would he not be, continue to be demon-possessed? No. Well, he would be, but it's temptation. He was, he was upset and tempted to go set up the betrayal. And then at the table... He was called out as the betrayer for his past action. And now Satan entered into his heart. Again, the temptation. Now go follow through. And Jesus says, go do it. Question, did Judas have the opportunity to not betray Jesus? He did. What we have here is a clear example of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They live in a tension together. Does God have the right and the power to create a person that will fulfill without any choice his will according and, and make Judas his? Sure, he could. Do we understand that as being fair? It's not our call. But we've got to understand that God is also righteous. Judas had every opportunity, but he never exercised it. Judas destined himself by his own choice. Yet God knew what that choice was before the foundations of the world. And he let Judas be born anyways. Necessitated it in order for the plan to be fulfilled. And there is a woe call out to doing that. Do I understand that? I can tell you, absolutely not. I don't get it. That is above my pay grade. But I do know that God is good. And there is no evil in God. Therefore, what happened with Judas was good and was holy and righteous. And I can't second guess that. Now, continuing on with the same theme, after Judas, we've got to jump down to verse 31. And in verse 31, after Judas was called out as the betrayer, Peter would be called out as the denier. Says Simon, behold, Satan has demonstrated permission to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail and that you that once you have uh, returned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said to him, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow tonight today until you have denied me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I send you out with money and, and a belt and a bag and the sandals, you didn't lack anything. And then he said, no, nothing. He says to them, but now whoever has money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also the bag and whoever has a sword, sell the coat and buy one. For I tell you that this will, will be written fulfilled to me. And as he was numbered with the transgressors for that, which refers to me as fulfillment. And then he said, they said, Lord, look here, we have two swords. He said, nah, one's enough. 
So what do we have in this? Well, we have two accounts. One, after, after Judas does his thing, he turns to Peter because Jesus knows exactly the temptations and the trials. And he says, Peter, Satan wants you too. But I prayed for you that you would persevere. And it's interesting because in the language it says, and after you have basically failed, I'm praying that you'll make the right decision to return and strengthen your brothers. And we know later in John 20, Peter's bummed and he says, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm quitting and going fishing. And Jesus meets him out on the lake and they get the fish and he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then, then go, go feed my sheep. He does it three times. Why three times? Because it's the restoration within that. Jesus knew that he would deny him. But Jesus also looked ahead at the restoration piece. Could he tell Peter, yeah, but you're going to come back. There's no lesson in that. Divine sovereignty with human responsibility. Judas chose poorly. Went out and hung himself. Peter went out and wept bitterly. Judas was sorry he got caught. Peter repented of his action with this. Which brings us to how we're going to close tonight. Which is how Jesus closed, I believe. Back in Luke 17, and I know we've jumped around the chapter a bit. Is where Jesus institutes the Eucharist, which means blessing. It was the blessing of the food or the communion. It says, when he had taken the cup, he gave thanks. He says, take this, share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and gave thanks, he broke it and, gave, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he had eaten. He says, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the covenant of my blood. And behold... Or, I'm sorry, in the covenant of my blood. And so he ended it there. Within this. What did Jesus do? And we've studied it a lot. He established a new covenant relationship. He took the third cup of the Passover meal, which is the cup of redemption. And he took the bread, the unleavened bread. He says, this bread represents my body that's broken for you. As often as you do this, remember me. This cup represents my blood. As often as you drink this, remember me. It's the new covenant, new agreement. The old covenant is done. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the confines of the old covenant. And it's now the new covenant. That's ratified by his blood. That is there. That's given. The bread is not the body of Jesus. It's a symbol. It does not, what's called transubstantiation, it does not change into the body of Jesus when it gets into your mouth. And it's not consubstantiation, like my Lutheran friends would say, which means that it is both the bread and the actual body at the same time. No, it's a memorial. And as often as you do this, remember me. How often? We're not told. Just when you do it. In the same manner that the Passover was a memorial celebration of the deliverance from slavery and, and they were covered by the blood, Jesus now becomes the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He's the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan that still has to take place. And in the last words, 
At the end of the meal, Jesus finished their time in what's called the upper room discourse. If you want to read it from a chronological standpoint, when they were done, before they leave, John chapter 14. You can read through it. These are the last words that he gives to them. And from there, they would sing a song and they would go out to the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane. Has God got a plan? Yes. Is he still working the plan? Yes. So don't lose heart. Just look up because your redemption's drawing near. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you've got a plan and a purpose for us. That, God, you are working out that plan. And that, God, you are, you are bringing it to full fruit. We are waiting and seeing. And, Lord, we know that, that you've got us. And, and we will reap if we don't faith. That we need to persevere and not give up. That we need to live our lives as unto you. And if you're going to come back at any moment. I thank you that, that you are in control. I thank you that Satan has already lost. And we need to keep that in mind as we seek you, Lord Jesus, with all our heart, soul, and mind. Let's stand and we'll close. It's coming on the clouds Kings and kingdoms will bow down Every chain will break as broken hearts declare His praise. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. And every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb for the sin of the world His blood breaks the chains Every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb Every knee will bow before Him So open up the gates Make way before the King of Kings. Our God who comes to save is here to set the captives free. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain. For the sin of the world, His blood breaks the chains. And every knee will bow before the Lion and the Lamb. Every knee will bow before Him. So, Father God, we thank you that you sent Jesus. We thank you that he will be coming through the clouds soon. And we uh, just want to be looking up and be ready when he returns. Until then, may we be your representatives 
And uh, may everything that we do be done unto you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Praise Jesus. We'll see you this weekend. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scapoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.